Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 368, Interview with Damian Lewis about his book, Churchill's Great Escapes. Seven Incredible Escapes Made by World War II Heroes. Mr. Lewis, the author of numerous World War II books, including The Nazi Hunters and the SAS Band of Brothers, comes on the show to share amazing escapes by Allied POWs that defied the odds and brought hope to their respective countries. The following tales will demonstrate the courage of humans and what can be done with a can-do attitude. Mr. Lewis, thanks for coming back on the show. Hey, it's my pleasure. Good to be back. Absolutely. So you and I were uh, talking a couple of minutes before we started recording, and we were, uh, we were saying that um, I should have you on the show once a year until we cover all your books. But since that would take too many years, maybe we should condense that a little bit. Yeah, I think we got to um, set our sights a little less high than that. Otherwise, <laughs> we'll be no, here until the end of eternity. <laughs> exactly. But I'm very jealous because I was just looking through your list of books, uh, all the things that you've covered. And uh, I just wanted to let you know that uh, The Nazi Hunters, uh, the one I, I recently ran across on uh, Amazon and your web uh, website, that is my, uh, that's on my list for this summer reading when I go to the beach, so I'm looking forward to that. But as far as I understood, this book that we're going to talk about today, you got the idea from The Nazi Hunters? Yeah, I have to say The Nazi Hunters is one of the can you say your own favorite books? Are you allowed to say that? I, th- I think I, mean, you I don't can. know. I think, I think you- yeah, maybe you can, maybe you can't. Anyway, it's it, it's one. Let me put it this way: it's uh-huh. one of the stories I'm most proud of because mm-hmm. it's the been a real. It was a real honor to write that story, and the reason being that, um, you know, the official history is that the the Special Air Service Regiment, British Special Forces in World War Two, right. in 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 which there were some American serving by the way might want to talk about that later but anyway the SAS in World War II officially was was disbanded literally months after the end of the war by October 1945 the secret history which is what the Nazi hunters tells Mm -hmm. was that the a small part of the SAS was secretly covertly kept alive for the simple reason of hunting down those SS and Gestapo war criminals who were responsible for capturing, torturing, and, and murdering uh-huh. without trial many, many numbers of uh, captured British, American, and allied nation parachutists, largely. So these were agents and special forces inserted deep behind the lines. Right. And the SS, small, small cadre of SS, was kept alive right the way through to 1948 to hunt them down. And that's the story of the Nazi hunters. That- Sorry, go ahead. Yes. And, and, and just just to finish your question. And so yeah. in one of those episodes in that book, one of the characters that kind of fell into my lap, standout <laughs> character. I mean, you couldn't make the guy up. Right. A North American, not a member of the SAS. Mm-hmm. In fact, a member of a Lancaster bomber crew who bailed out of his aircraft after it was shot down over the French-German border mm-hmm. and ended up being taken by the French resistance to the secret SAS base camp, 500 kilometers behind enemy lines, at which point the the commander there, a captain, uh, Henry Druce, and the SAS took took a look at this guy, appraised him, and said, well, now you're here, why don't you come and join us? So he became an honorary member of the SAS, and that was really the starting point for, for, for SAS Great Escapes. 
Yeah, I've got to say, I'm looking forward to this because um, the, the Nazi hunters, I certainly enjoyed the book about the escapes. We're going to talk about that. But I knew about the SAS. I knew about David Sterling. I knew about a lot of the incredible things that they did in North Africa during the war. But yet, like you were just saying, I didn't know what came after the war. So that's, I'm definitely looking forward to that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so let's jump into this, to this book, The, the Great Escape. So, um, despite conventional wisdom, British officers, and I did not know this, I had to look this up. British officers were not understanding orders to escape, nor were they, their American counterparts, which I just assumed that they were. In fact, it wasn't until what, 1955, that the Americans made it official that their officers should try to escape. I think that had more to do with the Cold War. But um, given all that, what were some of the reasons that people in your book literally risked their lives to escape, even though they weren't, it, it wasn't demanded or expected of them by their superiors? Yeah, it's a really good question and a very good point. Um, you know, this idea that you remain put in your prisoner of war camp mm -hmm. um, it, it was it was all part of really a bigger picture of not crediting troops with initiative, you know, expecting them to be individuals who followed orders uh, mm -hmm. blindly almost and uh, were not self-starters with, with initiative and independence and, and the ability to get themselves back to, to friendly wow. lines. And at its most extreme, for example, mm -hmm. in Italy, where there were tens of thousands of British, French, uh, American and allied prisoners of war, um, in camps spread across the country. When the Italians signed, signed the armistice of Kabil in, in, in September um, 43 mm -hmm. and changed sides, of course, you know, uh, exited from the Axis with the Germans and, and joined the Allied sides, mm -hmm. um, you know, those prisoner of war camps, suddenly the Italian guards walked away and they were unguarded. Tens of thousands of Allied wow. prisoners of war. And they were all under a standing order not to escape. Right. And and most of them adhered to that order. And lo and behold, when the Germans refused to accept, as they obviously wouldn't, the Italian surrender, mm -hmm. and took possession of, of all of Italy they could to continue the fight, they obviously re-established the prisoner of war camps. And in some of the cases, they went into those camps and they summarily executed the, the camp uh, inmates. Wow. And in, in, in many cases... They loaded them all aboard cattle cars and took them back to, to Nazi Germany, which was a fate close to, to death, obviously. Right. Um, so the standing order was, well, how can we put this politely? Mm -hmm. um, a gross mistake, to put it mildly. You could order a murderous, you could argue a murderous order uh, and not be too far from the mark. Um, right. But there were individuals, obviously, and especially within the elite units, commandos, but especially special forces and the SAS being the foremost of them, right. who were not schooled in that in, in, in that in that means of thought. They that they were taught completely differently. They were taught that as an individual you had as much right to 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 carry out a mission to its ultimate end deep behind the lines if you were the only member of your small patrol left alive. And the reason for that was that you know, in the original conception for the SAS, mm -hmm. you know, they, they were going to deploy as, and they did, as four, eight, maybe 12-man units as a maximum. The reason being that, well, several reasons. First of all, if you had a 60-strong unit, right. which was pretty much what the SAS was, was at the outset, even just 60 strong, if you deployed four-man units on multiple missions behind the lines, well, you can do the maths. You had all those chances of at least some of them succeeding. So this was a force multiplier. Uh -huh. The second reason for having these small units was that, you know, self-evidently, four men stand much more chance of slipping through enemy lines and causing carnage and mayhem as do 400. You were far less noticeable. Mm -hmm. And the third reason why, you know, uh, you know, four were preferred to 400 was because the cost if you were caught in terms of men and materiel was yes. so small so you could afford to take these risks and so those individuals chosen were deliberately selected for their left field mindset self-starting individuals self-confident right. you could argue unruly they were called unruly in the mainstream military but these were individuals who if you put them in a prisoner of war camp they despite the orders, were certainly not going to sit tight. And 
one of the really fascinating things about writing the book and it, it profiles seven seven great escapes right. was that before writing it i kind of you know i i didn't have a, a an overarching sense of why mm-hmm. that these men escaped and as you say risked all in fact they didn't just risk their lives of course they you could argue they risked far more than their lives because if they were recaptured they wouldn't just have been executed they would have been horrifically tortured right because the enemy would have sought to find out who within the local resistance and the local civilian networks had helped them as they invariably did Ah. and so they faced they faced not only death but they faced faced horrific torture and punishment and so what was it that drove them to do that well when you boil it down to its lowest common denominator, mm-hmm. it was actually a residing, burning need to rejoin their units and to fight alongside the men with who they had trained and operated before. It was that esprit de corps, right. that sense of camaraderie. And actually, not a small part of it was guilt and shame. It was the guilt and shame at residing in a prisoner of war camp pretty much safe getting fed a survival diet when they knew that their their former comrades were engaged even as they were there in that prison of war camp in back-to-back repeated operations deep behind the lines risking all to to vanquish the enemy it was that sense that they had to get back to their unit and rejoin their comrades and rejoin the fight that's what drove them onwards that's amazing. Yeah, I imagine that the training that they went through probably formed a bond between these two men. And you're absolutely right. These are not your average Joes. They are, you know, like you said, left field thinkers. And so they're going to want to escape. They're going to want to get back to their men. They're going to want to contribute back to the war. And uh, it doesn't matter that they could just sit it out. Uh, they have a mission to accomplish. And uh, they're like you said, they're going to risk it all. So I liked the idea that you brought up that they broke it down into smaller groups because what I enjoyed very much is that the, the name Churchill is in your title. And if you read anything about Churchill, you get a sense that he, he was a man of a previous time. He was a man of the 19th century. However, when it comes to World War II, he, 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 it's almost like this switch, this, this change in his mind. One, he wants science to take a front seat in the fight against the Axis because the Germans have already had a year's head start in building up their arms. So he's trying to negate that advantage by bringing in technology. And two, Churchill, the romantic, the warrior, whatever proper term you want to use, he loves the idea. And like you just said, it, it is efficient. It's more efficient to risk a few men who are risking everything to hopefully bring chaos to the enemy yeah absolutely you, you fit the nail on the head he was hugely um on side with science yeah and believing we had to win the scientific race to, to win the war which of course we did because we got the atom bomb first and then and nazi germany was trying to get it and mm. and the rest as they say is history but but he was also an absolute diehard advocate of uh, a guerrilla warfare small-scale wow. operations right. and that really came about because if for no other reason, well, two things. First of all, Churchill had 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 been involved both as a, as a combatant and a, and a news reporter in the Boer War, so right. before the Second World War in South Africa, and he'd witnessed at first hand the Boer commandos, who were these irregular bands of horsemen who used their own weapons, their own horses, they're dressed in farmers' clothes. Basically, mm-hmm. they were these roving bands of guerrilla fighters who to be frank with you, ran rings around the regular British troops. Right. You know, 25,000 Boer commandos tied down hundreds of thousands of British soldiers. And indeed, Churchill had been captured by them and held captive okay. and escaped. So he'd seen at first hand what the Boer commandos could do. And then at the outbreak of the Second World War, come summer of 1940, mm-hmm. he'd seen what the German Blitzkrieg had done in terms of taking the Low Countries and France. Right. And he'd realized that the defensive mindset that the French had adopted, and indeed the majority of British commanders wanted to adopt for Britain, which of course faced the threat of invasion, mm-hmm. was never going to work. And he was absolutely convinced we had to, and he used the phrase, set a reign of terror along the enemy coast using butcher and bolt raiders, leaving a trail of German corpses in their wake. Those were the phrases he used. And this was... It wasn't just unprecedented in terms of the British military or most, uh, you know, foremost militaries. It was, uh, you know, it wasn't just groundbreaking. Right. But what really got the the goat of the British uh, 
military upper classes was that this was very, very ungentlemanly behaviour. Right. This was not cricket. This was not how you were supposed to behave. Um, and they had not realised the world had changed. With, with, the, with the rise of Hitler and Nazism, they just hadn't got their heads around the fact, which Churchill realised even before the war. Mm-hmm. He knew the war was coming and he knew it was going to be a total war. Fought on every front, so fought economically, fought politically, right. fought by means of traditional warfare, but also by unconventional warfare. And knowing that, he knew you had to reciprocate and actually you had to go one stage further. So in terms of butcher and bolt raiders, his commandos and his SAS were going to be uh, piratical in the extreme, and he made no apologies for that. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing, it's all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Absolutely. I mean, uh, they're, they're outmanned, they're outgunned in a lot of ways. And we, we talk about people who think outside the box. It's my uh, impression that Churchill lived outside the box. He, you know, if, if something works, it works. You know, the niceties uh, be damned because this is a war. And like you said, it's a total war. So whatever it takes to win. Uh, and, you, and you have to, you know, you have to be honest and admire that even though we're completely under the gun, we're going we're gonna to stay and we're going to fight and uh, we're going to try to outlast the enemy. Sometimes that's all you've got. And I think he personified that brilliantly. So like you said a second ago, there are seven s- stories to your book. But I was hoping if we could cover three of them, then that would give the listeners a, a strong sense of the rest of the book. Could you please get us started by telling us about Operation Colossus and how, in fact, and I did not know this, that it was a pretty much an experiment for the Allies. Yeah, so Colossus again is a, you could argue, is a lost piece of um, certainly British World War Two history. So, right, it starts again with 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 Churchill's um, edict in June 1940 to form the Commandos, the original British Special Forces. Now, you've got to bear in mind that mm-hmm. you know June 1940, defeat in France, the British Expeditionary Force and our French and, and other European allies have suffered whole-scale catastrophic defeat, been driven off the French continent. The miracle of the little ships has happened, you know, Mm -hmm. hundreds of thousands of troops rescued from the jaws of shame and and disaster by the skin of our teeth and brought back to Britain. So that was in the first week of June, 1940. Wow. 48 hours later, I'll just repeat that, 48 hours later, Churchill sat down figuratively, if not actually, you know, one-on-one with a chap called Colonel um, Colonel Clark, who was, again, uh, one of the most little recognised and unsung heroes of the Second World War. Clark had been brought up in South Africa. So he shared with Churchill that knowledge, that first-hand experience of the Burr commandos in operation. And the two of them dreamt up the proposal that when faced with a monolithic all-encompassing, victorious war machine like the German, the, the, the war machine of Nazi Germany, right. guerrilla warfare was the only way to go. Again, to strike deep behind the enemy lines and spread confusion and terror. And so 48 hours after, 72 hours after the disaster of Dunkirk, Churchill put forward an edict that he wanted 10,000 
and they were called commandos or special service volunteers mm -hmm. because they were all volunteers formed by the end end of the year. Not only that, he wanted the first raid back across the channel by the end of June. Wow. That gave Clark three weeks. He had no men, no recruits, <laughs> no equipment, no training and no precursor and no commanders. Right. Clark got that raid back across the channel, 90 men in, in RAF crash boats. These are emergency craft to rescue downed RAF pilots. They're mm -hmm. not raiding craft at all. He got 90 men across the channel, raided a German outpost, took some captives, got back across the channel, and it was headline news in the British and American papers. Wow. But Churchill had also witnessed the Germans using airborne forces to take the low countries and invade France from the, un from the unexpected quarter. Mm -hmm. They'd used parachute troops and glider-borne forces, and Churchill was mightily impressed, and he saw the future of warfare, which was airborne. So when he, when he, when he issued his edict that he needed 10,000 commandos, he also called, called for 5,000 airborne troops, which wow. led to the training of a, the first cadre of airborne forces in Britain, uh, in, 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 at an airbase in the north of Britain. Um, and bear in mind, you know, look... <laughs> The people they used to start the training were people like, you know, high wire actors from the circus <laughs> and the few RAF guys from World War One who might have parachuted out of their plane. It was when it was getting shot down. Wow. I mean, no one knew how to do this stuff and they were making it up as they went along. That being said, by the turn of the year, the first the first group of 500 um, airborne commandos. Uh, had been um, trained and were, you could argue, ready for an operation. And so, because Churchill had called them the Special Service Volunteers, mm -hmm. and these were airborne troops, he said, right, we'll call these the Special Air Service Volunteers. Mm. And that was the birth of the Special Air Service name. So by late 1940, early 1941, 11 SAS Brigade had come into being. Why was it called 11 SAS Brigade right. and not number one SAS Brigade because it was the first. Mm -hmm. Well, it goes back to uh, Colonel Clark. Clark's greatest talent was in deception. He became <laughs> he became the doyen of it during the Second World War. Right. And he reasoned that if they called the number 11 commando, when the enemy found out about them, which they would, mm -hmm. they would presume there were 10 other commandos <laughs> before them. 10 other brigades before them and therefore we had already thousands and thousands of airborne <laughs> troops this was this was deception and it was fantastic yes but what you needed right. having formed that that first that that first brigade that first airborne brigade we needed a target you needed to test them mm. red in tooth and claw and so again churchill's brains child the special operations executive his third arm, arm of the armed services. So you had the army, the navy, the air force, traditionally, but Churchill dreamt up the special operations executive. And what they were there for was to wage ungentlemanly warfare in the extreme. So this was assassinations, right. economic warfare, um, dirty tricks, bribery, corruption, whatever, working with gangsters and the mafia, whatever it took to win right. the war. And the special operations executive came up with a plan called Operation Colossus. And basically, they'd realised that in Italy, from where, from the southern ports of Italy, the the Italians were sailing their merchant ships and their troops to North Africa, mm. where where the new uh, front in the war had been opened against British forces. And so the SOE realised that if you could paralyse those ports, you could pretty much shut down the Italian war effort in North Africa. Wow. And the three million people living living in and around those ports and servicing them. Their fresh drinking water was provided by an aqueduct which ran across the Apennine Mountains in Italy called the Aqueduct Pugilisi. And uh, the Trigino Aqueduct, one of these bridges carrying the water mm -hmm. across a ravine, was seen as being vulnerable. And so Colossus involved 36 airborne troops, the first ever airborne operation launched by the Allies and the first, obviously the first from, flown out from British soil. Right. 36 of these men flying hundreds of miles through enemy airspace, because, of course, France and, it, and Italy were, were now hostile, to parachute out over the Apennine Mountains, laden with explosives, blow up the, the aqueduct, and, well, let's be frank about it, kill three million Italians by right. starving them of having any drinking water. Yeah. That's what it amounted to. It's not nice. It's not gentlemanly. Right. It's not pretty. But if you can pull it off, damn, is that going to be effective? Yes. Churchill blessed it from on high, and mm -hmm. that was the mission that was launched in February 1941, 
um, to as the baptism of fire for the concept of British airborne forces. And of course, what then, you know, led on to become uh, American airborne forces as well. That's incredible. If I could just say real quick, because I'm currently doing uh, the war from Malta's point of view. And, and as we're going to see a little later after this operation, yeah, the, uh, uh, the, uh, the British with their allies, they're trying to bomb and attack Sicily. They're trying to negate Southern Italy because that's where all the, uh, the, uh, the transports, you know, from going to North Africa are coming from. So you're right. It is cruel, but it is absolutely brilliant. If we could, um, hamper or whatever the proper word is, uh, Southern Italy and Sicily, that would go a long way to helping not only Malta, but North Africa as well. So it's a brilliant plan, but someone's actually got to do it. Yeah, so I mean, you know, these 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 flying out and these ancient obsolete uh, Whitley bombers, right? And, and I'll be, you know, look, look, look. <laughs> you're not going to believe me, but they cut a hole in the bottom of the fuselage, right? About the size of your average trash bin, mm -hmm. right? Inserted a metal tube in the hole in the fuselage, about the size of your average trash bin, right. and the parachutist had to walk across the fuselage and try to drop vertically through that hole. Oh it, it was so difficult to do that they had a um, phrase for, for, for smashing your forehead on the far, <laughs> on the far side of the tube. Really? It was called ringing the bell or the Whitley kiss. That's how common it was. That's all they had. So they flew out in the, in these Whitley bombers. And, right. and, you know, the most amazing thing is that the RAF managed to navigate all, but one of these um, plane loads of parachutists to the very target and drop them over the aqueduct successfully. Um, unfortunately, right. the the uh, plane load who were dropped in the wrong valley happened to be all but one of the sappers, so the explosive oh. experts who were going to blow up the aqueduct with most of the explosives. So when they arrived right. and they got and, and, the, and the force reached the aqueduct, they realised there was only one guy left, uh, uh, the, uh, a Lieutenant Patterson, who was actually a Canadian. Mm -hmm. They called him the big Canadian because he was really rather large compared to the small Canadian they also had in the unit. Right. And Patterson stood at the aqueduct, looked at the pile of explosive he had, realised he was the only sapper still on the mission and was yeah. told by the commander, do what you can. So he piled all the explosive against one pillar only. Right. There were seven, several pillars of this aqueduct. And they lit the fuse and, and, and said their prayers. And lo and behold, when all those charges went off, which they'd tamped with rocks and and mud to drive the explosive force in inwards. Mm -hmm. That pillar was down. The aqueduct was was blown apart, and all the river, sorry, all the water yeah. uh, flowing through that aqueduct was pouring down the valley uh, uselessly and 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 into the river below. And so their mission had been, against all odds, right. against all odds, a, a resounding success. However, this is when it turns somewhat dark because the next day. A reconnaissance aircraft flying out of Malta, mm -hmm. which we talked talked about mentioned earlier, right. flew over uh, the, the the valley with the express mission to take photographs of the mission. When they got back to Malta, they, the, the, the the photo analyst looked at them and because of the angle at which they were taken. They reached the conclusion the aqueduct was still intact oh. because because the section just dropped vertically downward. So if you can imagine from oh. above, it, it it did appear as if it were intact, and oh. so because of that. In a, yeah, inexcusable um, decision, really, taken in London, the submarine that was supposed to collect the raiders from the western Italian coast, they were supposed to escape and evade through the mountains and get picked up, was cancelled and recalled because oh. they presumed the mission was a disaster, was a failure, and they'd all been captured. And so during their escape and evasion, all of the men, all of those raiders were either captured or captured and executed. Right. And and it, that's really the start of the escape story told in, in in the first story in Churchill's Great Escapes, which is Lieutenant Patterson, the big Canadians, unbelievable. I mean, really simply unbelievable escape story. Yes. Bear in mind, by the end of his escape, and, and it's not just one escape story, mm -hmm. Patterson manages to escape over the Swiss mountains to, to Switzerland having already spent months in Italy running an escape line of other allied POWs. And when he gets to Switzerland, he's asked to go and have an interview with, with, with um, what is masquerading as the local British Army press office. Mm -hmm. Of course, it isn't at all. It's the, it's the covert 
uh, local office of the special operations executive. Uh, and the guy running it says, look, I know this is probably not what you're uh, you're imagining doing, but would you go back into Italy for us, please? Link up with the with the Italian partisans, because we're about to make uh, to launch a major operation to take a a large swathe of northern Italy, and we need someone like you to to lead it. You speak Italian really well. You've got a massive affinity with the Italian people. Right. You know the terrain. Who better? Patterson, as it happened, had just met a beautiful blonde lady in Geneva. Mm -hmm. uh, fallen in love so he had every reason every 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 reason not to go back in but right. of course he did uh he was captured again and taken back to the prison where he'd already been imprisoned by the italians who couldn't believe he was back and escaped what uh, a, a, a third time and by the end of his escape so towards the end of the war to give you an indication of the level of stunning heroics that right. Patterson had engaged in, he would be awarded at war's end three military crosses. And the military crosses are very high valour British medals. So that's an MC and two bars. There were very few people who've been who've been uh, distinguished in that way. Wow. And that's that's incredible. I mean, he, he risked everything to get out and then he's asked to go back in. And what are you going to do except for say, yes, sir, there's a war on and I've got a duty to do so. That you know, despite like you said, so much, not not to mention human nature, he turns around and he does it again. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, oh stunning, stunning yeah. story. So, so um, if you want, we could leave that right there because I really want the the readers to enjoy all of the details, the nuances, the ins and the outs, and the moments of tension. Um, uh, the next story is about a Captain Rory Farron, if I'm saying that name right, who strangely finds himself in need of a tan and a seaworthy boat. Could you <laughs> tell us his story, please? Uh, yeah, of course. J actually, just on Patterson's story, yeah, if, if I can just say his daughter uh, lives in, in the States, and I just want to say a big thank you to her because it was thanks to her that I was able to tell that story as well. She gave me a lot of oh. detail about her father, which was just remarkable. And actually, just another little vignette, yeah, please. which, I mean, I, I, this is what makes my job so special. It's not a job. It's a vocation. It's a gift. Right. I sent her the manuscript to read, having written it, and she said, I have learned things about my father's war oh. that he never even told me. Right. That's amazing. That's when, yeah, yeah, that's when it really, you know, it really hits gold. Right. So moving on to Roy Farron's story. Mm -hmm. I mean, Farron, again, was, you know, would end up being a standout um, SAS commander in World War II and another recipient of three military crosses, believe it or not. Uh, and still to this day is a legendary figure within British Special Forces. And again, his son, David Farron in Canada, now living in Canada. Big shout out to David. Huge help in wow. telling this story. Um, so Farron was captured in Crete. Um, mm -hmm. And very badly wounded, uh, you know, German paratroopers dropped en masse uh, on Crete to take the British-held island, ferocious fighting, right. huge losses on the German side, very significant losses on the British side. Farron uh, was wounded and taken captive, very, very seriously wounded, um, and flown to Greece mm -hmm. uh, to be put in what was like basically a hybrid prisoner of war camp con hospital, nursed partially back to health. Right. Uh, and from the get-go, going again to what you were, we were talking about at the start, about did these prisoners have the duty to escape? From the moment he arrives in Greece at that, that prisoner war camp, stroke mm -hmm. hospital, Farron joins the escape committee. Wow. And, and they're very active. Mm -hmm. And one night there's a massive thunderstorm in the camp, and Farron wakens the next morning to realise all of the escape committee have escaped without him. And he's absolutely devastated. None yeah. of them breathed a word about what they were planning. They just slipped away under the cover of the storm and left him behind. And he cannot understand it, right. which drives him on even more to escape. Now, bear in mind, Farron's on crutches. Mm. So you might have an inkling why they left him behind, although he's not really seeing it that way because he's still very, so, very, uh, you know, um, yes. plagued by his wound, uh, by his leg wound. And so Farron decides that the only way he's going to be able to escape on his own now, solo, is to lie on the hospital roof, get himself a fantastically good tan because he's blonde, blue eyed and does not look like a local, a local 
a Greek man at all. So he needs to lie on the roof, get a fantastic tan, steal a disguise of some of the local Greek workers who who come into the prison of, of war camp every day and try to sneak beneath the wire. That is exactly what he does, wearing wearing a, a straw cap hat mm. of one of the, uh, the the local workers that he's managed to get his hands on, and uh, dressed in a, a a local disguise, tanned as much as he possibly could, he managed to slip below the wire and sneak away and, and somehow evade the scrutiny of the guards on their machine gun towers. Wow. However, mm. <laughs> in slipping beneath the wire, his local disguise has got caught and he ends up arriving in the local French, uh, sorry, Greek uh, 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 village just mm. nearby, pretty much with nothing on because he's left it all hanging on the wire, including most of his bandages. Right. And so a local, a, a local, a, a, some local Greek ladies gather right. and realize, of course, where he's from and who he really is. And they sneak him into a house. And that's the beginning of Farron's um, unbelievable, picaresque, crazy, mad escape across Greece um, to, 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 to the local port and eventually all the way across the Mediterranean, um, defying death at every a step of the way to get back to Allied lines in North Africa. Just the most unbelievable escape story with a fellow band of crazy escapists who uh, include, of course, several of those guys who he originally was supposed to escape with, who he managed to make contact with in Athens and find out, lo and behold, yes, they did leave him behind because they never believed for one moment he was actually physically capable of escaping because right. he was on crutches with a, with a badly injured leg. Yeah, you could see their point, but you can also see his point of view. And for a lot of people, that would have crushed their soul. And maybe it did for him for a little while, but he's more determined than ever to, to get out of there. I can't, when I was going through this particular story, I lost count of the times I'm like, oh, that's it. Nope, there's no way he's getting out of this. Or, oh my God, he's free. And then suddenly he wasn't free because there were so many obstacles in his way. But yeah, I mean, basically sailing across or almost sailing across the uh, the Mediterranean. Uh, absolutely incredible. But again, we're going to leave that for the, uh, um, for the, for the readers. Um, and if there's anything else that you wanted to say to Ty to, to end his story, that would be great. But, uh, the next one, um, and again, uh, I've read about David Sterling. I've read about the SAS, but in your, in your next story, it's August of 1942. The allies are trying to make Tobruk unusable for the enemy, but at the same time, they need to get in there and rescue some of their own POWs, one of them being Lieutenant uh, Thomas Bennett Langdon. Could you introduce yeah. him to us, please? Yeah, well, just to round off Farron's yes, story, uh, you know, I mean, uh, as you say, uh, so many times it's all over, but somehow it's not. And just one of the standout moments <laughs> is they're on that ship. They've, they've run out of fuel. They're adrift in the Mediterranean. Yes. You know, that some of them have gone mad and they're trying to drink seawater. Right. Farron's had to had to punch one of them out because he lost his um, marbles and tried right. to drink, you know, the last of, of the water that they had remaining. Um, they're all about to die. And then someone has the bright idea. One of Farron's um, uh, fellow escapees has the bright idea that they should build a distill, a distillery right. and distill seawater into drinking water. So they take the engine, which is useless because they've got no fuel left. Right. They somehow bastardize it into a, a still they rip up the wooden planking uh, that, that you know makes the, uh, mm -hmm. the, 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 the 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 deck of the boat. They build a fire, and by distilling seawater and and ending up with some fresh drinking water, they manage to survive for long enough until a British warship appears on the horizon, and they manage oh. to signal to it and get rescued. You know, just one episode wherein you believe they're all dead, and I think they yes. probably believe they're all dead, and somehow they snatch survival from the jaws of death. Uh, yeah, unbelievable. That, that's incredible. If I could be completely honest with you, and I don't know what your situation is, but in that situation, I would have been hopeless. I am not mechanically inclined. I could not have figured anything out. We would have, if it was up to me, we would all have been dead. But I guess uh, necessity is the mother of invention. Yeah, that's what defines these guys. You know, these guys who end up in, 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 in you know, these elite units, they yeah. are, they're defined by you know, never giving up, but they're also defined by a mind that just thinks the, the unthinkable, the unexpected right. to, t you know, to take the, the, the path less traveled. Uh, that's why they were so successful in warfare. That's why they were so successful in escape and evasion. That's why they were so successful at snatching survival from the impossible. 
Um, and, and again, you know, look, that's the theme of of of, of Langton's escape. Um, mm-hmm. That's a Brooks story, you know, that, that you mentioned. Um, you know, this is probably the most outrageous, outrageous story in the whole book because right. the very conception of it runs against every single accepted rule of war. Yeah. Now, of course, Rommel's North Africa Corps had taken Tobruk. Tobruk was the fortress port, uh, and the control of it really was the pivot in winning North Africa or losing North Africa. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, he'd seized over 30,000 British and Allied prisoners of war. Calamitous, yes. calamitous um, development. And actually, when Tobruk was seized, Churchill was in Washington having a conference with Roosevelt. Telegram arrived. Mm-hmm. Roosevelt read it out and almost couldn't tell Churchill because he knew how Churchill would react. When Churchill was told, he refused to believe it and had a telegram sent back to London saying, tell me this isn't true. And of course, it was even worse than they'd feared. So so a plan was put together uh, called Operation Agreement to to retake Tobruk using just a few hundred special forces operators. And Mm -hmm. it was predicated on the most outrageous uh, most unbelievable unit that, to my mind, ever existed in World War II. So they were they were given a cover name, the Special Interrogation Group, or the SIG for short. Right. And they were made up of German, Austrian, Czechoslovakian, and other Jews who had escaped Nazi Germany. And many of them had had their families and their loved ones killed in the Holocaust and had escaped mm. by the skin of their teeth. And some of their stories are absolutely heartrending. And these were men who had every reason to fight the Nazi enemy with every every molecule of their souls and to undertake the most extraordinary, insane, suicidal mission with no real care right. if they came back alive. And that's what the SIG was predicated on. So these guys were trained at the SAS base camp in Kabrit in Egypt. So in a little kind of private enclave at one side of the SS base camp and they spoke German from Mm -hmm. dawn to dusk they wore Uh, German uniforms from dawn to dusk they carried German weaponry and used to learn all all German kit weaponry maps compasses explosives everything they even wore German underwear they had German vehicles (laughs) they were so steeped in 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 the German military psyche that when they went to breakfast in the morning they ran there at the double singing German martial songs. Wow. The reason being that they were formed simply to masquerade as a German unit and via which to get British special forces deep behind enemy lines to areas it would be impossible to get to anyway. So this is rule-breaking subterfuge of the unbelievable degree. Right. And so, so the SIG... The plan that was put together in terms of Tobruk was the SIG were um, to drive these trucks, these captured German army trucks, and basically in the rear of those, they would have SAS and commandos with their hands supposedly bound, looking cowed, Mm. posing as prisoners of war. And the plan was the SIG would drive them through the inviolable, impossible to penetrate, heavily fortified Tobruk perimeter drive them down to the um, down to the docks, whereupon they would break open the prisoner of war camps where there were these thousands and thousands wow. of allied prisoners of war, arm them, and in that massive uprising inside of Tobruk itself, take back the port. I mean, <laughs> inspired, crazy, mad, brilliant, you know, you name it, it was one of those um, incredible missions. And, right. and, and the, the fantastic thing about this operation uh, – which was codenamed Operation Agreement, was that they succeeded. The SIG did exactly, and, and, and their special forces brothers in arms did exactly what they were tasked to do. They drove thousands of, of kilometers across the desert. They got to the Tobruk perimeter, driving along the main road, running along the coast as if they were any other German army convoy. They mm-hmm. bluffed their way through the perimeter. They got down to the docks. They took those um, the, 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 those objectives they were tasked to secure. But the mission fell apart in that a second assault force was supposed to land from the sea and reinforce them because they just didn't have the numbers to to, to, to carry out everything they were tasked to right. do. And that naval force never arrived. Basically, they were 
they were caught in the enemy searchlights. They, you know, the, 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 their their side of the mission was just not covert enough, and so and 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 a significant number of British warships were basically blown out of the water, and very few of those seaborne commandos ever arrived, and so that left Thomas Langton, Lieutenant Thomas Langton, one of the uh, one of the commanders of the Operation Agreement Force, who had himself been posing as a German officer, mm-hmm. to somehow try to get out of Tobruk, get through the Tobruk perimeter with a small group of fellow escapees and get back to Allied lines. Sounds simple? No. And right. not only did they have to get through the Tobruk perimeter, which was itself impossible to get through, supposedly, mm-hmm. you know, reams and reams of barbed wire, machine gun posts, minefields, etc., but even if they got through the Tobuk perimeter, they then had at least 300 miles of blasted, sun-scorched, waterless desert to get through, right. which was crawling with the enemy to then get back to German lines, of course, on the one side, to try and get through those, and then somehow to approach the British lines and not get shot by their own side. So that's what Langton wow. um, undertook with his men. And again... Um, you know, one of the most epic and uh, unbelievable escape stories of the Second World War, for which for which Langton rightly was awarded the MC when he did, you know, eventually get back to uh, British lines alive, having lost a lot of his men along the way and trials and tribulations, which, you know, you would not believe unless you read they were true. Just one example, you know, scavenging mm-hmm. tins of food from burnt out tanks. And, and realizing that if you open the tin of food, at the core of it, there was a little tiny nugget of corned beef or whatever it might be that was still edible because the fire had not, you know, ruined it all the way through. Or draining the radiators of these wrecked enemy and and and, and British vehicles to drink the water. Unbelievable survival. Um, epics. That's incredible. Yeah, and there, and there's heartbreaking moments along the way. I mean, forget the desert, forget the enemy. Um, you know, uh, the weather alone, the sun could kill them. But along the way, uh, some of the men are affected. Uh, they get sick. They they're forced to turn themselves in, and so it 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 is heart wrenching. But at the same time, it does show you the what is the word I'm looking for? The, just the stalwart attitude that these people had about they will get away they will defy all of these odds that you just mentioned and they're going to make it uh because that is the way they have to think in order to have any chance of surviving yeah absolutely and and you know one of the most extraordinary things about langton's story was that and again i you know search me how he did it right okay i have no con- conception how he did it he kept the diary all right wow and the diary is scribbled on scraps of you know guidebooks or whatever he had to hand right the reason I mention it is twofold. One, huge thanks to his family for letting me have access to that, the mm-hmm. Langton family. But the diary is just the most remarkable document in that it starts off being fairly cogent and compassmentous. It's a record of, you know, their, their, their adventures and misadventures. Mm-hmm. But as time goes on, the writing itself becomes delirious. And you realize oh. that the devil of dehydration they're suffering from is so extreme right. that his brain's getting fried and he can't even string words together properly. It is the most powerful and poignant and heart-rending testimony to what drove them onwards. Because at the end of the of, of those weeks and weeks they sent, sent escaping and evading, mm-hmm. he could not even put two words together and write uh, his, his, the memory of what was happening. He couldn't write, but he knew he could. He would have to keep walking, keep moving, whatever, or it was all for naught. Let, let me ask a follow-up question, and I never thought about this before, but as first of all, as far as his diary, that you're absolutely right. That mm. is incredible, and that is very humbling uh, for to not be in that position, but just to imagine what he was going through. So in your opinion, and I've never really thought about this before, when someone's in such a dire situation, they still take the time and the resources to, and they, I guess they feel the need to record what is happening to them. In your opinion, why do you think humans do that? Is it just a record in case they don't make it or what? But I just find it amazing. Amazing. Here I am trying to survive and I'm going to take some time out of each day and write down what I'm going through. Well, I guess two things, Mm -hmm. you know, bear in mind, this was a different time. There was no internet, no computers, no, mobile phones. Right. Uh, there was none of that 
digital pollution, let's call it. Mm. So the so the habit of reading books and reading poetry, which a lot of these guys did, right. and writing letters home and keeping diaries was ingrained, really ingrained. It's, gotcha. it's not an uncommon thing. But the second point, because mm. a lot of these guys did keep escape diaries, I think they did so because doing doing that did served a number of purposes. One, it enabled you to look back over what you had done, learn the lessons, and better manage your escape as the, an evasion as as the days went by. That's oh. the first thing. Okay. And the second thing was it gave you hope, because if you'd survived one you know, 48 hours sojourn in the desert with no water because miraculously you stumbled upon a Bedouin camp and they gave you, you know, um, sour goat's milk and that kept you alive. Surely you could do so again. So I think for those two reasons, oh. they, it, this was something that you find was extremely common amongst, you know, uh, escapees. I don't think they did it in the hope that one day someone would find it and write their story. Certainly not. They did it for... For those those reasons of it, like an internal sense of peace and a learning process as the escape went on, and, and by Jove, they did learn. You can tell from from these diaries and from the way they they change their escape and evasion procedures as time yes. goes on. They learn on the job, and indeed, in each of these stories, when the escapees get back to the UK, the first thing that happens is they are debriefed. It's more like an interrogation. The reason being, mm -hmm. well, it's several fold. One. Allied authorities want to know they're a genuine escapee and they've not been turned and they've not become a double agent for the Germans. Right. But more importantly, there are crucial lessons that you can learn about how to do it better next time, about what escape and evasion kits to provide these special forces soldiers going deep behind enemy lines. So all those lessons were, were, were recorded and learned and the diary was a key point in doing that. I, I never thought of that about that before, but yes, even though it's a miracle escape, you do, in a way, turn it into a science because there will be more. And so, yes, you gather information, what works, what doesn't, what equipment is needed, and you get better at it as you go along, which, of course, sounds normal. But even in times of war, that process is always needed, and, and I guess it's always carried out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's, that's incredible. Um, is there anything that you wanted to add on or finish with uh, with the last story? And again, for the for the listeners, we have barely touched this. There are there's uh, four more stories, and there's a lot of details that we left out about the three uh, stories we talked about. But the perseverance, the courage, the sense of duty, never giving up. After I finished reading this book, I, I would turn to my wife and I was like, I, I should never complain about anything again. I will, but I shouldn't because these men went through something so much tougher than what I have to each day. Yeah, I mean, you've hit the nail on the head, my friend. Look, um, you know, these stories fell out of the last 15 years, I guess, of writing World War II tales about special forces. Right. It's, it's a strange process. It's like I kept coming across these incredible tales of escapes most of which had never been told. Thomas Langton, Langton's escape story, the one where they went imposing as German soldiers, never before told. Right. You know, just, just unbelievable. And there's so many like that. I kept coming across them thinking, my God, that's extraordinary. Why has that story not been told? Another one, that's extraordinary. Why has it not been told? And and, and they kind of filtered through to my conscious and, and, and kind of embedded themselves in my memory. So eventually I reached a stage where I thought, these, we've got to start telling these. So let's choose... The, the most magnificent seven. Let's choose Churchill's seven great escapes. But the point is, there are 700 more. Right. And there are 700 more from, you know, from the SAS, from the commandos, but also from American special forces, from the Rangers, from Americans serving with British special forces, from mm -hmm. other nationalities, from Norwegians, from the French. This was something which, you know, in the battle to defeat Nazism, in the battle to see that the, the free world would triumph, um, you know, so many individuals stepped step forward and were willing to risk everything, not to remain in the prisoner of war camp, not to take the easy road, not to have a fairly cast iron guarantee that you'd make it back to your loved ones alive at the end of the war, but instead to risk everything to to get back to the fight. And that was magnificent and right. And as you say, you read these stories and you research and you think, you know, I have nothing to complain about in my life. 
Right. Nothing at all. Yeah. It's the equivalent of I stubbed my toe. Uh, <laughs> yeah. What, what these guys went through. So if I could come full circle, we started talking out about the Nazi hunters, which, of course, is now on my reading list when I go to the beach in late July. Another one I want to add on to my list is I, a book. And tell me if I got this wrong. You have another book coming out in July. Uh, Agent Josephine, American Beauty, French Hero, British Spy. The one and only jo- Josephine Baker who risked everything to help the uh, the Allied cause in France. Yeah, so um, Agent Josephine is um, is a hell of a story. It's something that, um, well, how did it come to me? I mean, I'd known about her story for at least a decade, mm-hmm. and it was like, I do not understand this. How can a black female superstar, which she was before the war. She was the most photographed woman prior to the war, right. the toast of Europe, uh, you know, the, 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 the superstar of mm-hmm. the celebrity of her adopted Paris. How could someone of that kind of profile end up being a standout spy in World War II? Surely, you know, everything about her mitigated against that. She was too recognizable, too well-known, yes. too high profile. And then, my father happens to live in France and he happens to live in a chateau. It sounds very grand. It's a 14th century chateau <laughs> from where the Crusaders actually rode out on the Crusades. But all he did was he sold our little country cottage in, in, in Dorset in England, mm-hmm. where, where, where we were brought up. And with the proceeds of that, he bought a chateau that was so derelict, it had cattle living in, in it and it was being used as a barn. Right. And he moved there and he renovated it. Uh, and it's now absolutely beautiful. And because of that, he's got this real interest in ancient buildings. He happened to go to the Dordogne in France and visit Chateau de Milan, which is which was Josephine Baker's resistance and espionage headquarters in the Second World War. It's this beautiful chateau. Wow. He'd gone there because he's drawn to these places, this beautiful building. What he'd experienced when he went there, because it's been turned into this shrine, especially this living museum, especially to her mm-hmm. World War II years. And what he'd experienced when he'd gone there was this incredible uh, face-to-face with Josephine Baker and her wartime story. So he called me up and said, look, you know, I've just had the most amazing, amazing revelation. There's this, there's this woman who was a spy in World War II, and she's got the most amazing story. You need to tell it. And so it's all wow. thanks to my father and 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 his uh, his uh, you know renovation of, of Chateau de Montsaint, which is my father's chateaus, which what my father's chateau is called. That right. I kind of was drawn into this story, and shortly thereafter, I went to visit Chateau de Milan myself, uh, Josephine Baker's resistance headquarters, mm-hmm. and I just knew that this was a story that absolutely had to be told her wartime espionage exploits on behalf of the french but then the british and then the americans because of course she was american of birth were groundbreaking and extraordinary and cost her so much and gave us so much in terms of winning the war that you know this was a story one really had to tell so yeah it's it comes out um in july in states and i'm really really proud that that story is being told Excellent. I am so looking forward to that one because I've always been a big fan of hers. And yeah, here's someone who literally celebrity rich has the world at her fingertips. She doesn't have to risk anything. And yet she does because she, like so many other people, can see the difference between right and wrong. Uh, I just had an idea. So your, your book, that the one we've been talking about today is Churchill's Great Escapes. Seven incredible escapes made by World War II heroes. But I'm thinking if this is only volume one, one day two, you can have your own chateau. And there we go. You'd be all set. So now we've got a plan. We've hey, man, a plan. That, that, that's a fantastic thought. I mean, actually, to be fair, my father yeah. is kind of in his 80s and he keeps saying to me, one day you need to, uh, you know, uh, move here and take this over because we are not going to let this li- li- let the family lose this place. And I'm like, yeah, OK, Dad. Um, <laughs> yeah, maybe you got a point. So but I'll have to keep banging those books out, my friend. I really yes. will. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, sorry, you're absolutely right. Just going back to what you said about Je- uh, Je- Agent Josephine, you hit the nail on the head. Bear in mind, she was an American citizen. Yes. She could have done what most Americans did when when France was taken by the Nazis and Paris fell. She could have gone to the U.S. embassy, said, give me some papers. Yeah. They would have done so. And she could have fled to American safety. She chose instead to stand and fight. And boy, did she fight. That's incredible. And I think you'll agree that history shows that we are always in need of heroes. And fortunately, a lot of these people step up at the right time. And we should honor them in books because they really do 
help bring about improvement or change. Yep. Could not agree with you more. Could not agree more. Okay, so I think we've got a reading list for all of the listeners. We've got Agent Josephine, we've got the Nazi Hunters, and the book that we talked about today, Churchill's Great Escape. So you, dear listeners, you've got your reading assignments for the summer. We'll have you back next year, and we'll come up with some more books uh, for everybody to read. Uh, Mr. Lewis, thank you for your time. Again, thank you for this brilliant book. I really did enjoy it. And why not? We'll just have you on again soon, and we'll cover maybe Josephine's story, and we can go from there. You know, I'd love to. It's, it, you know, if you and I sit down and talk about that story, you will be blown away. It is utterly compelling and utterly remarkable. I'd love to be back. And it's always a pleasure to talk to you. I love speaking with individuals such as yourself who know your subject inside out. It's a pleasure. Thank you, sir. You have a good day. And um, I literally will talk to you later. Okay. And you. 